So we are going to be in James chapter 4 this morning um, as we continue our study through the book of James. Uh, there is a, an old adage, I'm sure you guys have all heard it before, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. It's not in the Bible, just FYI. That's one of those things people are like, oh yeah, it's totally a verse, it's in Proverbs. No, not in the Bible. But it does raise the question, how do we make plans? Are we supposed to make plans? Right? Because, I mean, if we, if we trust God, if we trust God to provide and protect and care for us, does it matter then if we budget, if we save, if we make plans for the future? Shouldn't we just be present in the moment and trust that God is going to get us to that next moment? Right? What about like Matthew 6 when Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Right? God's got this, right? So why do we need to make plans? But on the other hand, we have verses like Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you blessings until there is no more seed. Proverbs 15.22. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Jesus, in a different passage, makes a point about when he's talking about being one of his disciples and following after him. He says in Luke 14, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So clearly the Bible has a lot to say about making plans, establishing goals, looking to the future. And there's a right way to do that, and there is a foolish way to do it. And this morning we're going to see what James has to say about these two different things. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into James 4. So please bow your heads uh, and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for another chance to gather together to sing and pray and open your word and hear from you and spend time together and all these gifts that you have given us. You've given us this building. You've given us the chance to proclaim the gospel in this neighborhood for decades. You've brought people together from different backgrounds and cultures and ideas and identities and, and united them through the gospel today is a gift that you have given us, and it's not just to get us to tomorrow. We're not just filling time until the next big event happens. You have a reason for giving us today. You have something you want us to learn. You have a moment for us, many moments for us to step into to glorify you. You have a reason and purpose for today for every one of us, God. I pray that we would pay attention to those things that we would respond to those things, that as we open your word, as we hear from you, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers also, that we would respond to what you have for us today. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be in James uh, 
4, starting in verse 13. Today, we're gonna, I'm going to throw a bunch of other verses at you, so it's a good day to have your Bible open. It's always a good day to have your Bible open. Today is another one of those days. Uh, James 4, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for them it is sin. We said last week in James uh, 4, as we've walked through this letter, that most of the first three chapters of James... He, he refers to those he's writing to as brothers, brothers and sisters, and there's this gentleness, this pastoral care over and over again. And then in James 4, the, the tone kind of shifts. The tone kind of changes. He called them uh, adulterous people and double-minded. And here, it's, it's still very stern, strict wording. It says, come now. Hey, pay attention to this. Pay attention, those of you who are the planning type, the ones who are about lists and calendars and schedules, you have all kinds of plans and dreams ready to go. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. Now, plans and dreams and schedules and to-do lists, these things are not bad or evil or sinful. But like everything else in James, it's about the heart and motivation. What is driving us in the way that we live? He says, you who make plans. And then he lists out the ways in this, this very normal way of thinking. He says, you who make plans, you say today or tomorrow. So there's a when. It's in the future. We got a when for these plans. We're going to go. There's a who. It's we. We're going to go into a town. There's your where. We'll spend a year. That's how long this is going to take. We're going to trade. That's the what. We're going to do work. And we're going to make a profit. And there's your why. Making money. Providing for a better life for my family. Again, it seems like typical, normal planning. Who, what, where, when, why, how. We're going to go, we're going to work, we're going to do what needs to be done to provide and make some money. What's missing from these plans? There's something lacking in this planning. We're going to come back to that question later on. He says, you who make all these plans, and it goes on to verse 14, you make all these plans that you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You make plans, but you don't know what's coming. We are finite, temporary. We will not live forever. For me, usually on Mondays, I take Mondays as kind of a rest day. I, I, I take a day away from all church-related work. That's why if you've ever reached out to me, like on a Sunday or on a Monday, and I don't communicate, I'm not, I mean, I'm kind of ignoring you, but like, it's not a personal thing. I'm just taking a day away. You're not going to hear much from me on Mondays. On Mondays, I try and kind of rest and just spend time uh, away from church-related things. About six years ago, my Mondays got a lot more direction and focus to them because Benji was born. My son was born. And so Mondays became Daddy Benji days. And then two years ago, Benji Daddy days became Sophie Benji Daddy days. It's a day where it's me and the kids. Sarah's at work, so uh, I'm in charge all day long of the kiddos. And so tomorrow is Monday. And so the plan is tomorrow we're going to have breakfast. We'll probably play some games. Um, there's talk of, of going to visit my grandma. She hasn't seen the kids in a while, so we're probably going to go do that. Maybe eat somewhere special for lunch. Benji's going back to school soon, so maybe we'll go out eat some uh, eat a good lunch. Um, 
Sophie's hopefully going to take a nap. Um, she'll probably go for a walk, maybe at a dance party, read some books. We just got a bunch of books from the library. Uh, and the plan is, for sure, above all of those things, the plan is everyone is going to be kind and calm and compassionate and considerate to one another. We're all going to show great care and patience with each other. There's going to be no yelling or screaming or anger. It's going to be a very peaceful, easygoing day. That's the plan. I have no idea if any of that's going to happen. I have no idea what tomorrow is going to look like. And neither do you. Now, to take that thought even a step further, not only do none of us know what tomorrow is going to look like, we don't even know what's coming this afternoon. I say it every year during our Ash Wednesday service, we don't know when our time is up and what's going to happen next. Every one of us can have our entire lives changed just by the simple ringing of your cell phone in your pocket, depending on what the news is on the other end of that call. For all we know, for some of us, this could be your very last Sunday. And I know that's a heavy, weighty concept, but that's what James is talking about. He says, when he says, what is your life? It's a mist, he says, that appears for a little time and vanishes. We're not talking about like a heavy Chicago fog. We're not talking about like when the weather changes and we get that fog that like sits on top of Sears Tower for like hours and hours. We're talking about the puff of smoke that comes from like an e-cigarette. Like it's there for a second and then it's gone with no trace left behind. You don't even know it was there. That's what James is saying. Our lives, us as humans, we are a temporary puff of smoke. So what James has said is, we make these plans, we make decisions, we set things in motion to prepare for the future, and yet we don't know how much future we have, and whatever amount it is, in the very big picture of it, it is a puff of smoke gone in an instant. And yet, we are so sure of what we do not know and do not have. We are so sure we have more time, and that that time will last and linger. We are so sure of that that we allow ourselves to get this tunnel vision on what is yet to be, what may never be. We formulate and we structure our days, our weeks, our finances, our relationships around this notion that we have more time and more control than we actually do. We save and put away money. We invest in 401ks. We plan for retirement, assuming we're going to see retirement. We will intentionally not commit to an event or gathering based on the notion that something better might happen instead, even if that something better is just a desire in us that says, I don't want to go, I don't want to put pants on. We live based on what we do not know and have no control over, but we are confident we're going to experience it. So much of our days is dictated and directed not only by, not by the present, but by this hoped-for future that may or may not exist. All of this, James says, is a collective arrogance that we carry with us, that we live out. Look at verse 16. You boast in your arrogance, and it's evil. We live assuming that while our days may be numbered, that number is so high we don't have to worry about it or even consider it. He says in verse 16 that we boast in our arrogance. And the question really is, what do we have to be arrogant about? 
I mean, remember how we got to this point in this letter. James wrote about two types of wisdom in chapter 3. About false worldly wisdom and then true godly wisdom. The false worldly selfish way of existing had crept into the church. It was causing fights and quarrels. A double-mindedness, James said. This double-mindedness had begun to settle into the midst of these Christian communities as they settled into new places due to persecution. They were forgetting who they were and were becoming more and more driven by their own desires. He said up in verse 3 of chapter 4, you do, not have, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask wrongly to spend these things on your passions. It was this wandering away from the lead and protection of God, and it was happening amongst God's people. And we read how it was playing out in verse 13. It's settling in, making plans, going along, just living, making normal everyday decisions, but always lacking something. It's a very us-focused way of thinking, which is a byproduct of that worldly false wisdom, selfish arrogance. It shows our lack of trust in God. We've talked a bunch, especially in the last couple of weeks, about this idea of this false worldly wisdom creeping in and really at its core is a lack of trust in God. Why do we think we know better than he does? I mean, we'll go to him, right? When we're sick, when someone's hurt, when there's an emergency, there's a hardship, immediately, God, help us. God, show up. God, lead and guide and protect. That's easy. But what about, should I leave my current job? Should I take this promotion? Should I marry that person? Should we rent? Should we buy? Should we move? We make these decisions not based on seeking counsel from church leadership or from mature Christians, not based on prayer or scripture, but based on this is what I want, this is what I think is best in this moment. If we do pray at all, the prayer says, God, open the doors, make this super easy for me. But so now... We pray that prayer and we begin to view everything that we experience, anything easy that comes, anything that lines up with what we already want and desire, anything that makes sense, we have now cloaked in our minds God's approval, allowing us to move forward on whether or not we can go into this decision, whether or not God actually wants us to, because we've decided, well, it's easy, so clearly it's from God. James said, you ask and you ask wrongly. You ask with the wrong desires, with the wrong motives. Just because something is easy doesn't mean it is from God. And on the flip side, just because something is hard doesn't mean it isn't from God. And it's not just a big decision. Day to day, moment to moment, situation to situation, what is your guiding and driving factor? Kent Hughes, in his commentary on James, talks about in this passage, he talks about Christians living as practical atheists. What he says is basically, there are those who will profess faith in Jesus, who will show up to church weekly, they read their Bibles, they attend prayer meetings. But when it comes to day-to-day -day living, how we work, how we exist in our family, how we plan for the future, we rely on our own gifts, talents, abilities, feelings, and desires, rather than trusting or even seeking after God's will in these things. And James says we boast in our arrogance when we do this. Which is ironic, because again, what do we have to be arrogant about? James has already told us, we're ignorant about what the future may hold and have no power to change or extend how long that future even is. 
We lack knowledge and we're here for a second. How impressive are we? We are lacking in every sense of the word and every facet of this life. For all the bravado and ingenuity and creativity of humanity, we are a fleeting, failing, temporary creature that is actively seeking new ways to try and destroy itself and the world we live in. And when you take us and you compare us to God, to who he reveals himself to be in the Bible, it should hopefully alter the way we view ourselves. When we think about things like the fact that God is all-powerful, the church word is omnipotent, or the way I would drive my mother-in-law insane when, she, when I was in high school, omnipotent. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. There is nothing too big, too overwhelming for God to handle. Hebrews 3, verse 4, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. John 1.3, in the introduction to John's gospel, all things were made through him, Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Genesis 17.1, God speaks and says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God could make this covenant with Abram that he would give him descendants and land, that his people, his bloodline would be a blessing, not just to its own family, but a blessing to the world. He could make those promises. He could make that covenant because God Almighty is in control of all things. He is the creator of all things, sustainer of all things. He is in control of all things at all times. He is all-powerful, omnipotent God. And on top of being all-powerful, he is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. That is true of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God started the beginning. He began the beginning. He was there before everything else because he is uncreated. In Revelation, Jesus says of himself, I am the Alpha and the, the Omega, the beginning and the end. In Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, says in Psalm 45. No beginning, no end, everlasting, eternal in control of all things, no beginning and no end. He knows all things. He sees all things. He is intimately involved in all of existence, working all things out for his glory and the good of those who are his. We could keep going, and it is a healthy and good thing to do, to sometimes to spend time, hours on end, to just engross yourself in who God is and the ways that he has revealed himself and dwelling in who God is. And the more we do that, the more it should draw out in us more and more of an understanding of our need for humility. An understanding of who we are in relation to who God is. Because we are not anywhere near him in any sense of the word. By nature and default, we are enemies and rebels against God. Objects of God's wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins. We are created, temporary, finite beings. He is the eternal, uncreated, everlasting creator and sustainer of all existence for all time. He is perfect, righteous, loving, just, holy, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, gracious, merciful. That list could keep on going. And it's not only who he is, but he is the standard. He is the creator of these things, the originator of these things. If you think of someone who is merciful, ultimately, to decide whether or not that person truly is merciful, you would have to compare them to the perfect mercy of God. He is eternally all of these things and the originator of them. 
The fact that who God is should keep us humble. He is big and massive and majestic. We can develop peanut allergies, and we have trouble eating pizza rolls because they burn our mouths because we can't wait for two minutes until they cool off. We are not all that impressive as a people. And when we begin to think about how great we are, how impressive we are, how talented we are, and we begin to lose sight then of the splendor of the majesty of God, then we begin to trust in ourselves rather than him. Which then leads us to need him because in leading that way of thinking, we will fail, we will fall short, we will sin. And it's there in the muck and mire, it's there in the hardship that comes with our own rebellion against God that we call on the name of God, God help, I've screwed up again, please come help and save me. And God will step in and be who he is, the loving, kind, good father, and he will forgive and he will pick us up and wipe the dirt off and say, okay, let's try again, let's keep going. He does not fail or fall or miss the mark. He is there every time because he is in all things and all and throughout all things. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is in control of all things at all times. Without him, we are in a world of trouble. The, the, the devotional that I use during the week, um, it has me reading a certain psalm. It picks a different psalm every week. And I read the same psalm every day. And this week, I was reading Psalm 127. And it starts and it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Jesus himself says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Without God, you can do nothing. I asked us earlier, what, what was missing in verse 13? These Plans that the people were making. Plans that seem normal, everyday routine. What was missing? I hope it's obvious at this point. What's missing is a sense of humility, and bigger than that, it's missing God's involvement. Instead of grinding through life on our own feelings and emotions and passions and desires and talents, we are to seek and trust in God's leading in our life. Plans aren't a bad thing. They aren't evil. Having to-do lists, having a schedule, having some type of concept of how you want things to go, these aren't bad. Again, we heard the verses right earlier. God wants us to be good. Uh, God wants us to be wise and be good stewards and to make plans and use our time and gifts and talents wisely because he, these things are gifts given to us. But what is the motivation? What is your heart for these things? Why are you doing what you are doing? Why are you making the plans you are making? And have you considered what God has to say about the things you are trying to set in motion? James mentions in verse 15, he says, You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. This is not a direct line you need to say every time you make plans with someone, right? Like, hey, you want to go get coffee? Sure, if the Lord wills. Like, that doesn't have to be in your vernacular all the time. You don't have to caveat every decision with, if the Lord wills. It's a mindset. It's a function of us living into the reality of who God has made us to be. What he has made us to do, and what he has saved us to be and to do. To be the lights that shine in the darkness. To be his ambassadors, his representatives, his people on this earth, in this place. Because you were intentionally and personally designed and created by God to live here now for his purposes. 
purposes he wants to accomplish specifically through you because he made you specifically for those purposes. He has made you. He has plans for you for all of your life. There is no separation between secular and spiritual. It's not, okay, I'm a Christian during these hours during the week. I'm going to shine brightly. I'm going to be a Christian during these times. But then over here in the rest of the week, I'm I'm just going to kind of go with the flow of the world in these other times. I'm going to tuck my faith away. I'm going to turn down the brightness and the light in certain places. I'm going to speak one way and share one part of myself with these people. And I'm going to speak another way and share another part of myself with these people. And never the two should meet. You don't get to turn your identity as a child of God on and off any more than you get to turn your identity as a member of your own family on and off. So then, your role as a daughter or son of God permeates into all that you do and all that you are. How you work, how you are a neighbor, a friend, a spouse, a parent, a family member, just a a person interacting with another person, stranger or not, all of it should be done flowing out of your identity as a child of God. All of it should be influenced and filtered through the lens that you were dead and God made you alive. You were a slave to sin and God freed you. You were condemned as guilty and Jesus paid the penalty for your sins and you are innocent now through the blood of Jesus. It's what James has been saying throughout this letter over and over again. If you have faith, it should be evident. It should be observable. It should be able to be seen. Your faith should have an action to it. Not to show off, not to so that you can show that you're a better person or more holy than somebody else, but to point others to the life-changing, life-giving, life-fulfilling reality of what it looks like to live in a relationship with the Almighty God. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, many of you probably have this one memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Trust him. Lean on him. Go to him. Let him guide and lead and direct you and he will show you what is best. Not just what is good enough, not just what is settling, not just what is existing, but best, thriving, life abundant. That proverb goes on in verse 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Don't cling to the wisdom of the world that seeks only self-gratification. Walk away, turn away, run away, get away from those things. If you will trust, if you will follow, if you will trust and follow God, it will be healing and refreshing to your bones. There is rest in the presence of God, hope and safety and confidence and security. Look at these promises in Proverbs. God is promising that if you acknowledge, if you go to him and seek his wisdom in all of your ways, meaning all of your life, he will make straight your path. If you pursue him, he has promised healing and refreshment. So if we look at just Proverbs 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, or 5, 6, 7, and 8, Do you trust the promises of God or not? If you do, what James has been saying throughout this letter is, if you trust the promise of God, live like you trust the promises of God. But how do I do that? We pursue him more and more. We open his word. We read it. We experience more and more of God revealing himself, his character, his will, his heart for humanity, more and more to us. We go to him in prayer. We share our burdens. We share our joys. We have that open line of communication with him. 
and we listen. We get quiet and silent and just sit and not run through to-do lists or scrolling Instagram, but just sit in the presence of God and say, God, I'm here. What do you have to say to me? And then as things come into your head, as things come into your heart, you then go back to Scripture and filter those things. Is that me talking? Am I just talking to myself in this moment? Or is that God speaking to me? And you go back to Scripture and you check those things. You get into a relationship with other people who are trying to do the same thing. More and more, you make time for people who build you up. Engage with community. Be real and honest and genuine. Be known and seek to know others. The more we can do these things, the clearer the will of God and the desires of God will be in our lives. The more and more evident, the more understanding we will have. This is not a perfect, okay, if I do these things, then God's going to make me better. No, what is our heart behind these things? Do we have a desire to know God more? Do we have a desire to delight in him? If we are actively, honestly pursuing him, he's going to show up and he's going to reveal himself. And he's going to lead us. He promised he would. But it takes intentionality. You're not going to wake up one day and be a wise, mature Christian, deeply rooted in your relationship with God, without taking day by day, moment by moment, choices and decisions that will lead you down that road. It takes pursuing him because he is already pursuing you. He has been and he continues to. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all of it to the glory of God. Whatever it is that you are getting up to, from going to work to sitting on the couch and deciding, what am I going to watch on Netflix? All of it matters to God. All of it is an opportunity to glorify God. Even when no one else knows it or sees it, God does. All of who you are matters to God. Your decisions, your actions, even your inactions, all of it matters to God. And that's what James says there in verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We want to be a people that pursues with humility a growth in our own spiritual maturity as well as growing ethically and morally, right? When we're small kids, we begin to learn at an early age right versus wrong. Our parents, our teachers, our community begin to try and instruct and guide us to pursue do what is right, avoid doing what is wrong. It's part of learning to be a member of society. As Christians, as the church, we want to raise up our kids to do right and wrong, to, avoid, to do right and avoid wrong and avoid sin, not out of just a sense of uh, duty to society, but out of a, a joy and a love and obedience to God. God loves us, and so we want to respond to him with how we live. We want to choose light over darkness. We want to pursue holiness rather than sinfulness. But James takes this a step further. James is all about getting up into your business. Verse 17 does, doesn't say, hey, don't do bad things. That, that's kind of a given. Right? He's writing to Christians. We're past resurrection. Jesus has taught, like, these are Jewish Christians. They've had the law their whole lives. Don't do bad things. Yeah, okay, that, that's a given. Sure, James. Now, verse 17 says, evaluate. Not only are you not doing the wrong things, but are you doing the right things that you know you should be doing? Because if you're not doing the things you know is right, that's still sin. Again, from a young age, we instill in our kids, don't do what is wrong. It's taught and reinforced everywhere. It's taught and reinforced even as we get older. Don't do bad things. Don't break the law. But James says, much like Jesus took the same kind of idea where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount took these ideas. He said, hey, the law says, do not kill. Great, don't kill. But I say, if you have hate in your heart, it's like killing. So 
Not only avoid murder, avoid hate in your heart. James takes the same kind of idea. He says, don't just avoid what is wrong. But if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, you avoid, you ignore, you just choose not to act in that moment, that itself is sin. We have the sins of commission, the stuff where we actively choose to avoid the right, good, and godly thing to do, where we actively choose to pursue something that is going against the will and glory of God. And then you have the sins of omission, the times where we know the right and good and holy thing to do, and we don't, we're not actively rebelling, we're not actively choosing something that is anti the will of God, we're just ignoring and failing to act when we know we should. Both are sins, both are times and opportunities where we miss the mark of Christ's likeness that God is calling us to. Both are an offense to God. Now hearing that, you might begin to think, there's a lot of times. If I think about my life, there are a lot of times where I had an opportunity to do what I knew was right in a moment, and I didn't. I didn't do anything actively wrong. I didn't do anything actively mean or evil. I just didn't do the right thing at that time. I just ignored that and kept going. You start to think that way and you start to feel the weight of sin. With that can come a dump truck of guilt and shame and regret. This passage right here, these, these couple of verses, have basically said to us, okay, I, I'm ignorant about what's coming next in my life. I am a temporary mist. I am a temporary created being with wiring that wants to rebel and fight against the God who made me. And even when I'm doing good and I just take a play or two off, I just ignore a couple of moments to step into, even that is still rebelling against sin. And in all of that, I think I got it under control. I don't need any help and I can make my own plans. That's an overwhelming message of hopelessness. Because all of it is focused on me. What I can and can't do. Who I am, what I want, what I can and can't control. Passages like this remind us why we need the gospel and how it works. Because there will be times where we know the right thing to do and we fail to do it. There will be times where we actively know the wrong thing to do and we choose to do it. And with both of those things, the death and resurrection of Jesus covers those sins. Jesus knew we would mess up. Jesus knew we would sin. That's why he went to the cross. And that's the hope of the gospel. That's the message of the gospel that, look, okay, you sinned again. Let's get up and let's get going. I've got you. I'm here for you. Just choose to follow me and I've got you. And even when you mess up, I am here to forgive you and bring you more grace. Without the cross, without the grace and mercy of Christ, without the good news, we are helpless and hopeless. When it's left to us on our own devices, we fail time and time again, and yet we continue to get sucked into this way of living. We live, and it's, Jesus, thanks for getting the ball rolling, but I'll take it from here. I'll handle what's coming next. Because that's worked for you so many times in the past? No. Did it work for you before you became a Christian? No, that's why you turn to the grace and mercy of the gospel. Passages like this, these couple of passages here at the end of James 4, act like an MRI for our hearts, for our souls. It reveals that we are sick and in desperate need of healing. 
It shows just those areas and those places of our lives that need the gospel to come and be the healing balm that it is. It shows we are in need and that Christ fulfilled that need for you by dying on the cross in your place for your sin. And yet we continue to try and go back to just, I'm going to lighten up and grip my way on the steering wheel of life. I'm going to hope for the best. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to figure it out on my own. We do it, and we try and make it all happen on our own, and then when we run into a tree, we're like, why did that happen? Because we have ignored the grace. We have ignored the gospel. We have left it behind. We get suckered into this idea that to be a Christian is that the gospel brings us into this new relationship with God. Thanks, that's awesome, but then I need to do more work on my own. I gotta make things more complex. I gotta do more, be more, try more, do better, run harder. The gospel is this starting thing. It gets me going, but then it's on me to make myself more like Christ, to make myself more of a Christian, to make my family better. I gotta do it all myself. No. You don't leave the gospel behind. It's not something that you grow out of, it's what grows you. The gospel justifies you with God. It sanctifies you. It makes you more and more like Christ. It is the thing that should be driving us. It is when we allow the gospel to filter every thought, every decision, every action, every interaction, every inaction. That is when we see us grow in becoming more and more like Christ. So we can't leave the gospel behind. We can't just move on from it. It is essential for us, both in our salvation, but in our day-to-day living until Christ calls us home. Paul says in Philippians 1, I am certain that God, who began the good work within us, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. It is God that calls us. It is God that initiates the relationship with us. And we'll see it through until the day we are standing before him. So let's get our eyes off of ourselves and our work and our wants and our desires and onto Christ and his work. Look, there will come a day when things like boasting and arrogance, pride and selfish ambition, these things we've been talking about throughout James 4, ego, these things will no longer be part of the vocabulary. They will be long gone, defeated, and erased. Today's not that day. Today we must be aware of these temptations and these things that lurk within us. And instead of fixating on them, instead of letting them drive us and lead us, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Make your plans. Dream your dreams. Create your to-do lists. But do these things with your eyes and hearts and minds focused on the God who made you and who knows you and who loves you and has a plan for you. so caught up in living and in trying to get to tomorrow and trying to get to the next thing and working for the weekend and getting to that vacation and getting to just the next. We get so caught up in trying to avoid pitfalls and, and make plans and steer things in the right direction and sometimes we do these things 
we forget to include you in any of what we're trying to plan. We forget to pursue your will in making decisions. We forget. We get distracted and we ignore and we choose our way over your way and we lose sight of what our eyes should be fixated on. God, help us to not be so distracted. God, give us a heart and, and minds and desires for you to long for you, to know you deeper, to grow in relationship with you. And from that, as we seek the kingdom of God first, everything else can flow. God, help us to be, to want to be good stewards of the time and gifts and talent and finances and all these things that you have given, these blessings you have given us. We want to use them well. We want to use our time well. We want to use our relationship, our lives well. We want to live into these things and experience them well in a way that glorifies you. And we know it's not enough to say I'm a Christian, so I'm going to do that automatically, because we're not. God, I pray that you would give us a realization of our daily need for the gospel daily need to be reminded of the grace and mercy and hope and life that is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I pray that as we daily remember that, daily rediscover that, that it would drive us and guide us as we make plans, as we dream dreams, as we do these things. I pray that we are a people driven by the gospel, driven by glorifying you living in response to the good news that we don't have to do these things on our own. We don't have to get caught up in trying to win, earn, and beat out everybody else, but we can just be present with you and trust you and lean into your guidance and your protection and your love, grace, and stability. God, sometimes it feels scary to do it. Because we think we have more control when we try and make every decision all the time on our own. But we know that you are in control of all things at all times. Help us to remember that, to live into that, to experience that, and to trust that. God, give us a heart and a passion and desire to know you deeper. And as we do that, let that permeate through everything that we do in this world. We thank you and praise you. Amen.